Chuck Norris is so angry with you right now for saying all of those things about his beloved Rangers. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. And I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Today we look at one of the bloodiest feuds, the rise and fall of Republicans, and the legacy of Reconstruction in Texas. But first, what's your favorite museum in Texas? Battleship Texas. Of course it is. I love the Institute of Texan Cultures in San Antonio. It's a nice museum. Now, I'm going to deviate a little bit, and while it's in Texas, it's not specifically of Texas or about Texas, and that's my favorite museum, which is the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth. I just, it's a nice space. I love it. It's smaller than the DMA. It's beautiful. Survey says, (laughs) (laughs) That's really nice. The name and Carter Museum is not far from it, too. It's really nice, too. Does anybody like Ripley's Believe It or Not? I do. (laughs) Is that a museum? (laughs) That's a museum. It's a museum. Yeah. Okay. So just like last time, there's going to be some terminology that we use that's straight out of the research. We're not condoning some of the language, but we're also acknowledging that that's what was written. It's really hard to rewrite all of the history books that we read. So just bear that in mind as we continue through Reconstruction. Now, when we left off, the Civil War is over and Texas is now occupied by federal troops as the Reconstruction process has begun. The provisional government of Andrew Hamilton has somewhat reestablished civilian government over the state, and a new government is in place that has largely restored the pre-war establishment, including many former Confederates, to power. Slaves have become free, but quote-unquote black codes have been passed to harshly control their lives. The Freedmen's Bureau tries to work to better the lives of the freed slaves, but are met with terrible violence and oppression by diehard former Confederates who opposed any rights for blacks in Texas. Finally, we looked at the Corners region of Northeast Texas, where the violence and strife was perhaps its most bitter. The origins and motivations of the Lee-Peacock feud are probably the most difficult part of the story. It's interesting that a story over 100 years old is still capable of producing such extreme responses from people. The basic facts of the story are this. Bob Lee and Lewis Peacock were both farmers from Pilot Grove in Hunt County, which is between Sherman and McKinney. Lee was a Confederate who served in Tennessee and Mississippi, and somewhere along the way acquired the title of Captain. Peacock was a Unionist and an abolitionist who had sat out the war. But after the war, both men quickly became the focal point for the anti- and pro-Union factions in the Corners region, which is just north of Dallas. The most common version of how the feud started is the one from Gladys Ray's 1956 book, Murder at the Corners. The story goes that Peacock and some of his friends kidnapped a sick Bob Lee in 1865 or 1866, ostensibly for crimes he committed during the war, but really because he was getting just too popular with the ex-Confederates and was a threat to the Union League. Uh, They held him for two days and then robbed him and let him go, whereupon he set out to the county authorities and reported the crime. But it was ignored by federal troops. So Bob Lee went on revenge against the Peacock faction. Now, the only source for this story is Bob Lee himself in a letter he wrote to a Bonham newspaper in 1868. According to James Smallwood, Barry Crouch, and Larry Peacock in their book Murder and Mayhem, The War of Reconstruction in Texas, there was no record of this robbery in the local records at the time. Now, researchers have found a number of indictments against Lee for robbery and murder at the same time. 
Now, whether or not the robbery actually happened, when you look at the historical record, you see that it's clear what Lee was up to during the years after the Civil War. He established a fearsome reputation as a desperado and was mentioned as early as 1866 in reports from the Freedmen's Bureau in the same light as Desperado's Cullen Baker and Ben Biggerstaff, with some accounts indicating they worked together. Lee's ferocity in attacking freed blacks, unionists, and even federal troops earned him the nickname Maneater and may have come to the attention of President Andrew Johnson in 1867. Freedman agent DeWitt Brown reported that the worst of the desperados who were preying on blacks and unionists were Bickerstaff, Cullen, and Bob Lee. Lee and the others operated with impunity out of the thickets of North Texas because the local authorities had no way to bring them to justice. Despite their violent nature, the desperados had a lot of support from the community, largely because of support for the Confederate cause and opposition to Republicans. These desperados combined with the emergence of the Klan in the area in 1867 to make the corners an area of raging chaos and pushed Peacock and the other members of the Union League to organize to fight those who opposed them and freedom for blacks. The conflict in the region split up families just like the Civil War. The Maddox and Boren families had been close friends to the Lees before the war, but as was common in the area, members of the Borens and Maddox family served on both sides of the war. Henry Borens was a Unionist, and after the war, he and his brother Israel sided with Peacock. So did former Confederate Jim Maddox, who couldn't stomach Lee's actions. In late 1867, at Pilot Grove, Lee and Maddox got into a gunfight at a saloon, and Lee was badly wounded. This set off a wave of ambush and attacks between the two factions that resulted in dozens dead and forced General J.J. Reynolds to dispatch troops in 1868 to crack down on the Desperados and the Klan in northeast Texas. Baker was killed and Bickerstaff was driven off, and Lee and his gang, which may have included a young John Wesley Harden from Denton, were also attacked. Lee's gang did include Harden's cousins, the Dixon Boys. In May 1869, though, Bob Lee was ambushed and killed by federal troops and unionists. This was led by Lewis Peacock and Henry Boren. With Lee's death, his gang scattered, but the killings and fighting continued for several years, and they even spread or merged with violence in other parts of the state. A day after Lee's ambush, his friend Bill Borens killed his uncle Henry at his home and rode off to join his friend John Wesley Harden's outlaw gang in Oklahoma. He returned years later and was killed by Henry's son. The Dixon boys and Joe Harden, who was Wes's brother, went south and continued to prey on freedmen, as well as even the white citizens of those counties. Simp Dixon, who appears to be the quote-unquote Negro killer, which is cleaned up from the actual language, outlaw known as Dixie, and was killed by federal troops in 1870. In 1874, his brothers and Joe Harden were arrested and lynched west of Waco. Lewis Peacock stayed in the corners and was active in Republican politics. He appears to have thought that this was going to give him some protection from those who still supported Lee and wanted revenge. In July of 1871, shortly after his group killed some more of the Dixon brothers, Peacock was gunned down in front of his home by the Dixon boys' half-brother, Dick Johnson, as well as a fellow Lee man named Joe Parker and another unidentified man. Johnson fled to Missouri, and he only returned to Texas in the 1920s, but Parker became a genuine outlaw in the Dallas area and was finally killed in 1874. Peacock's family left the area for their own safety, and he was buried in an unmarked grave by a neutral minister in the feud 
pretty much petered out. No one really knows for sure how many were killed in the feud. Some sources count as few as 20, uh, and some as many as 200. Now, Lee himself bragged that he'd killed over 40 men, and Simp Dixon claimed 30. Most reports push the death toll about 100, but possibly far more were killed because most freedmen killed were never ac- accurately reported. And whatever the case, the bitterness of the Corners War would remain firmly ingrained in the memory of North Texans to this day. Later conflicts, such as the Horrell Higgins feud, the Mason County War, and the Jaybird Woodpecker War from after the Reconstruction period, were deeply rooted in the political animosity of this era and would play a part in the War of Reconstruction. So while all this was going on in the towns of Northeast Texas, events in Washington, D.C. would have great impacts on the state. After 1866, radical and moderate Republicans became increasingly at odds with President Andrew Johnson over the leniency of his Reconstruction policies and the steps taken by former Confederates to return to power in the southern states. They blocked Southern congressmen, including former secessionists David Burnett and Orrin Roberts from Texas, from even taking their seats, and there was rising outrage to the severity of the Black Codes, as well as violence against freedmen, union sympathizers, and the Freedmen's Bureau. Republicans held the supermajority in both houses of Congress after 1866 and took control of the course of Reconstruction, passing several acts over Johnson's vetoes for the first time in American history, including the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which gave freed slave citizenship and the Reconstruction Acts, which dissolved civilian government, instituted martial law in most of the southern states, and essentially took control of the army away from the president. In July 1867, General Phil Sheridan, who commanded the 5th Military District, which had jurisdiction over Texas, removed Governor James Throckmorton from office as a, quote, impediment to Reconstruction. Sheridan believed that Throckmorton's government would not protect the rights of freedmen or punish the diehard Confederates who were committing outrages against the freedmen and those who tried to help them. Now, of course, we've seen at this time in the corners, this action was met actually with more re- resistance and violence throughout the state. And at one point, Sheridan is reported to have said that if he owned hell in Texas, he'd live in hell and rent out Texas. Incidentally, Sheridan's actions in Texas would result in Johnson attempting to dismiss the Union war hero from his post and to fire Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, his boss. This violation of the newly passed Tenure of Office Act, which gave Congress control over the dismissal of cabinet members set Congress down the path of impeachment for the president. Now, he narrowly avoided being removed from office, and for the rest of his term, he played little part in pretty much anything to do with the running of the country. Sheridan appointed pre-war governor and committed unionist Elisha M. Pease to be interim governor until they could hold yet another constitutional convention and general election. Throughout 1868 and 1869, the military removed former Confederates all the way down to the local level, and the only people who could participate in government offices were men who could swear the test or ironclad oath that they had never voluntarily borne arms against the Union, or given aid, countenance, counsel, or encouragement to the Confederacy. Pease called an election for constitutional convention delegates, and under the terms of Congressional Reconstruction, this was the first election where black citizens were allowed to vote in Texas. The diehards, by now identifying themselves as quote-unquote conservatives, opposed the black voters as well as the upcoming convention and claimed they preferred military rule to the quote-unquote Africanization of Texas that would surely result from the new constitution. But their initial strategy of boycotting the election resulted in Republicans making up the majority of the delegates. The convention lasted from June of 1868 to February of 1869 and was extremely contentious. There was conflict between the Republicans and the conservatives. That, that sounds really weird today. Oh, yeah, that doesn't sound anything at all like what you see on the news today. <laughs> 
But these Republicans were not completely united, uh, with many moderates led by Pease and A.J. Hamilton favoring special interests that included the railroad, more limited civil rights stance, and accommodation with conservatives and ex-Confederates. The radicals, led by Hamilton's brother Morgan and Edmund J. Davis, supported increased rights and protection for blacks, punishment for ex-Confederates, and at least in Davis's case, less support for special interests. It was eventually finished, and it was very different from previous constitutions. It condemned secession, it abolished slavery, it permanently gave voting rights to all adult males, and civil rights to all citizens. The central government was made stronger, taxes were increased, and public education was made mandatory for the very first time. Now, of course, the convention and the new constitution were controversial and unpopular with conservative elements of the state. Pro-conservative newspapers attacked the convention as being overrun with Yankee scallywags, carpetbaggers, and quote-unquote ignorant Negroes. Now, the truth is that only a few delegates had come to Texas from outside the state since the end of the war. Almost all of them were, were from Texas before the war. Most of the freedmen delegates were educated, and several were landowners. Uh, most of the Republican delegates were Houston Unionists who had either set out the war or, in a few cases, had served in the Union Army. Now, regardless, the conservative press stirred up feeling against them and their cause, and there were further waves of violence that seemed to be aimed directly at discouraging black voters from participating in the political process. Now, this time frame also coincides directly with the rise of the Klan. Klan and other attacks throughout the state resulted in the deaths of hundreds of freedmen and unionists, including the murder of one Republican convention delegate, George Smith. Despite the violence against blacks, the new Constitution was ratified and presented to new President Ulysses S. Grant in Washington. Grant and Congress accepted it, and a general election was set for December 1869. Once again, the Republicans were unable to show any unity, and the governor's election came down to moderate A.J. Hamilton and radical E.G. Davis and conservative newspaperman Hamilton Stewart. Once again, the election was plagued with violence as conservatives, while not outright supporting Hamilton, still tried to prevent blacks from voting. Black voting was down by 10% overall. In some counties, it was even higher. Collin County, plagued by the Klan and the Corners War, saw a 70% decline in black voter participation from the 1868 election. Davis won the election by 800 votes, but the total votes cast show that nearly 40,000 registered white voters did not vote. Neither Davis nor Hamilton received more than 40,000 votes, and Stewart only received 400 votes. Basically, none of the white Democrats voted, so the conservatives and the Democrats would not make such a mistake again. The Davis administration focused on a number of specific issues. First, restore Texas to the Union, then stop the chaotic violence raging through the state, ensure civil rights for the freedmen, improve conditions on the frontier, and finally strengthen the state's economy. It was the job of the new legislature to pass laws and measures to assure all these things, as well as get Texas formally readmitted to the Union. Now, they did this by immediately ratifying the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and selected staunch Republicans Morgan Hamilton and James Flanagan to be the state's U.S. Senators. On March 4, 1870, President Grant admitted Texas back to the Union. Texas. Now, David set out to implement his other policies, first and foremost, dealing with the violence and lawlessness. At the Constitutional Convention, a study had shown that between 1865 and 1868, 939 murders were reported throughout the state. 460 were whites killing whites, 373 were whites murdering blacks, 10 were blacks killing whites, and 57 were blacks killing blacks. The number may be higher since not all counties filed reports. 
one of the apologist arguments for the Klan's violence is that supposedly they were out to punish criminal, black criminal behavior. But it seems like this report in Texas shows that this doesn't really bear out, does it? Only 82 counties in the entire state had jails, and other than the walled state prison in Huntsville, most of them were pretty easy to break out of. And so to stop the lawlessness, the state police and a state militia to support it was formed. The state police was given the authority to enforce the law throughout the state without jurisdictions. Now, in addition to the state police, ranger companies were reestablished to patrol the frontier. They had been dissolved after the war and, and not really reenacted by the reconstruction, previous Reconstruction governments. The, the ranger companies were pretty successful, although there weren't very many of them. But the state police was very unpopular, mostly because they were Davis's creation, but also they fully integrated with white, black, and Tejano officers and men. And this was very unpopular. They were, in a lot of ways, the natural target for criticism by Davis's opponents because they were, they were the, out there among the people. And their cause wasn't really helped by the fact that Davis did use them in the militia to declare a martial law in several counties where attacks on blacks and on them became uncontrollable. Now, the conservative press accused them of murder, corruption, and incompetence, and of enlisting, quote-unquote, the worst class of Negroes in Texas to redress the imaginary grievances of their race. Historian Walter Prescott Webb, who we've talked about before, gave them pretty short shrift in his 1935 history of the Texas Rangers. He said their story was one of, quote-unquote, official murder and oppression. But there was a grain of truth when he did write, the force never had the slightest chance to succeed because it was bitterly opposed by the most substantial element in the state. And that even though it had done commendable work, the people would have denied it any claim at all of success. A recent examination of the state police has been a lot kinder. Historian Robert Utley, in his history of the Rangers, more recently said, the state police made great strides in containing the violence and crime in the interior counties, and the stubborn refusal of many Texans to accept the verdict of the Civil War invited heavy-handed measures. Chuck Norris is so angry with you right now for saying all of those things about his beloved Rangers. Probably the most far-reaching policy that the Davis government pursued was for public education. The Constitution of 1869 made school attendance mandatory, and it was Davis's theory that by educating all of the children in the state, civil order would be promoted across the board. Expanding education across the state was ultimately successful, but it should be noted that even under the radical Republicans, it was still segregated. It was controversial, and this was met with opposition from moderate Republicans because of the extra expense, and of course from the conservatives because it was a Republican program under the Davis administration. It is to Davis's credit that even though it was later decentralized and localized, public education for all has remained a right for all children to this day. Ultimately, Davis had to deal with constant attack by conservatives and the conservative press on one side, and conflict with even his own party in the legislature. According to Carl Moneyhan's Texas After the Civil War, when he entered office, he was considered even by moderate conservatives to be a personally honest and capable statesman who had an earnest desire to confront the state's very real problems. However, the Republicans were fundamentally split on a number of issues, and Davis's approach to dealing with them deepened those splits. While he was in favor of expanding the railroads, there were factions within his party that were willing to grant practically any concession to the railroad interests to expand them. 
which Davis worried would bankrupt the state. His conflict with moderates over this issue pushed them closer to the conservatives and undermined his own agenda. The state police, the education system, and the expense and taxes needed to support those programs drew further criticism from moderates and conservatives. A special enabling act allowed the governor to appoint state and local political positions, which of course invited charges of cronyism and abuse. There was undoubtedly some corruption on some levels, but like with the state police, the conservative and moderate press seized upon every real instance and chose to distort or just make up stories about rampant corruption at every level. So by 1871, it was clear Davis wasn't going to be able to get to count on the full support of the Republican Party in the next election. The high taxes and the perceived abuses and Davis's alienation of special interests really drove the moderate Republicans into the camp of the conservative Democrats. Uh, Davis's civil rights policies done nothing to reduce the animosity among larger population towards freed blacks or their role in Texas's political or social life. As the 1871 election neared, resistance to the state police resulted in several riots throughout the state that had to be put down by the militia. The election itself saw rampant harassment and violence against black voters designed to suppress their vote. In some counties, there were even separate ballot boxes for black voters which weren't counted. More importantly, white Democrats voted in this election, and the result was that Democrats won in every U.S. congressional district and took the majority in the state legislature which then proceeded to systematically dismantle Davis's programs, usually over his veto. The state police was the first victim, and the scope and centralization of the public education system was also greatly reduced at this time. Despite all this, Davis still felt he could win the general election of 1873 and ran against Democrat Richard Koch, a Confederate veteran. The Democrats ran their campaign attacking the Republican Reconstruction policies, especially on the elevation of the freed slaves to equality. Now, one conservative newspaper editor charged that Davis, quote, endeavored to put us beneath the feet of the brutish Negroes who had once been our slaves. This kind of attack was often repeated. During the election itself, the violence and intimidation of black voters from the 1871 election was repeated. Davis lost by, you guessed it, around 40,000 votes. Davis held on to his office and appealed to his friend President Grant to send troops to support him, and for a few days, things in Austin were tense. But in the end, Grant refused to intervene, and Davis had to step down. Twelve years after Texas had seceded from the Union, Democrats, mostly comprising the same political establishment as before the war, were back in power in Texas. The violence and chaos in the state came to an end because there was no longer anything to fight about. The Unionists, Republicans, and freedmen had lost the War of Reconstruction. So, what is the legacy of the Reconstruction in Texas history? Why have we taken two full episodes to talk about this? It's important to look at a few things to really understand this legacy. So first of all, it's the rise of the lost cause ideology. The lost cause, this theory, became popular in the South even before the war ended, but it really caught on during the Reconstruction period. Uh, And this theory says that while the cause of the South, uh, which secession was just, and that uh, they were better fighters and soldiers than the Yankees, the reason they lost the war was because the North just had more men and more resources, and the South was just drowned by the numbers. And there's some truth to this, because the North did have more more men and more resources, but uh, the whole idea that the Southern Cavalier was the better fighter, uh, that was, you know, that was really the root of the of the lost cause. And so you see this when you watch the movie uh, Gone with the Wind, and it says at the beginning of the movie, there's the, it says, there was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here, 
was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and of slave. Look for it only in books, for it is no more than a dream remembered, a civilization gone with the wind. Now this is the essence and root of Lost Cause ideology. And as the Reconstruction went on, the idea of this cause is morphed from what was clearly slavery in 1861 to states' rights in 1867 and 1868, as the people that you know pushed secession because of slavery changed changed their wrote their memoirs and changed their positions now in texas what you can do you can add to this the notion that like you said mike the rest of the, the south may have lost the war but texas wasn't defeated and you can really start to see the part that this played in to resistance to republican efforts to give power to the freed slaves and it made heroes of men like bob lee and john wesley harden and cullen baker and others Now, if the lost cause had gone away with the Reconstruction, it would have been one thing. But the victory of conservative diehards meant that in a lot of ways this lost cause ideology was able to be institutionalized. Beyond that, it was able to combine with the myth of the carpetbagger and scalawag-driven Reconstruction to shape how the entire period was viewed from an academic perspective. In the late 1800s, a Columbia University professor named William Dunning took the position that the radical Reconstruction had been harmful to the South and that the elevation of blacks into political life was a mistake that necessitated the natural reactions of Southern racism and segregation. For several generations, academics who studied under Dunning, who personally was an abolitionist, added to the so-called Dunning School of Historiography, normalizing the carpetbagger and scalawag myths, and downplaying or justifying the racial violence of the Klan and others. It wasn't until the 1960s that the academic world seriously challenged those theories, and there were still some elements of them today floating around. We especially see this type of teaching still in our primary school textbooks, which are largely rewrites of books adopted decades ago. Several key Texas historians like Prescott Webb and Ernest Wallace at least accepted the Dunning School consensus about the Reconstruction. The first official history of Texas was written at the turn of the 20th century, and the political section was written by Oren Roberts, the chairman of the Secession Convention and later history professor at the University of Texas. The story of the Reconstruction told and taught for decades was one of carpetbaggers, scalawags, and Negro misrule. And that's what I remember. Those textbooks came from that official history of Texas. The other area where the events of Reconstruction had a lasting impact was on Texas's African-American community. Now, the Koch administration and subsequent Democratic governments would systematically disenfranchise these people. And by the 1880s, the Republicans would essentially wash their hands of the situation. Black codes would return, and these would become Jim Crow laws, and these would dominate Texas and the South until the 1960s. Everything in the public life was segregated. Now, we can't deny that black citizens of Texas were able to make great strides, though. Despite all the obstacles in their past, black communities would form, black businesses would be established, and several of Texas's historic black colleges and universities, such as Paul Quinn College, Prairie View A&M, and Texas Southern University would be founded. The most important thing was that despite all the roadblocks put in their place, African-American Texans would never lose their right to vote, and there were many black Texans who remained politically active throughout the turn of the century and into the next, and they would continue to fight for equality and civil rights. There's a lot of passionate feelings about the Civil War. We've already talked about that. And there remains passionate feelings about the Reconstruction. What we're taught about these things, it colors our perception of the period. Now, when I was researching this this topic, I focused a lot on the Murder and Mayhem book, partly because it was such a fascinating story and partly because we, we all live in Collin County. So this thing happened right here where we live. 
and partly because as I was reading this book and looking at the sources, I was really struck by the polarizing nature of what people said about this book and, and felt about it. Now, in the book, actually, they talk about that they were interviewed on a Fort Worth television program. The authors talk about this, about the story. And one of the authors, who's Larry Peacock, he's a descendant of Lewis Peacock. He was deluged by hate mail from people about the book and, you know, saying it was an attack on a true Southern patriot. Now, you look at the Amazon.com feedback section for this book, and you see that those comments are in there. And you look at websites devoted to the subject, you see similar attacks where they challenge the research. They point at primary sources as conflicting and contradicting the information in this book. But if you look at those primary sources, and the, the book uses those primary sources as well, a lot of them are newspaper accounts of the day. While newspapers that were very, very polarizing, you know, very, very split and very, very slanted in their perspective. And then they also rely on primary sources of people that had memories of that time. And again, they, you know, those memories may have changed over time. So, you know, some people consider Gladys Ray's book to be the definitive account. I read that book. I found it was dated and lacked in sources. So was Bob Lee a Southern hero or was he a racist murderer? Was Lewis Peacock a political opportunist or was he a genuine freedom fighter? Well, I, don't, I don't really know. What I do know is that for people in this area, it's still a touchy subject because there's lots of folks that are still related to the people. These are their ancestors. And memories are long, even 150 years later. Now, so the point is that like with the Civil War episode, we just, we need to understand the truth of context of the period. And research, new academic research is really revealing more of a comprehensive perspective on what occurred during this time. We need to understand the context as we look at other events in Texas history that they affected. If they, if we ignore, I don't know how about you guys feel, but if you, if we ignore the parts of history that make us uncomfortable or feel guilty, uh, we're not going to learn from those things. And we need to understand that these were terrible times that Texas went through. So John Milton McCoy, who was a carpetbagger himself, he later became an important civic leader in Dallas, and he said, My idea is that the time will come when Texas society will be the most refined of any in America. It will simply be the polished steel. It is now steel in the rust and rough. Send your teachers, your preachers, your churches and schools, along with your railroads, and the great Lone Star State will be the particular bright evening star of the first magnitude in the western horizon of that galaxy of stars known and read by all men in the United States. But there is work to be done. So what you just read there, that quote about Texas being the the shining star and the the example society for the rest of the United States that kind of encapsulates some of what we've you know talked about in all of our episodes, which Texas is kind of this unique place where all these different ideas come together and, and turn into something really great. What I find interesting about Texas is, and I have to explain this when I meet people not from Texas, is Texas is not the South. Texas is not the Midwest. And Texas is not the Southwest, nor are we Mexico. Texas simply is. And Texas is not just a land where we came in and we kicked out the Indians and we kicked out the Mexicans and we built a new society. Uh, it's a land where we came and, yes, we battled different groups and there was lots of political diversity and problems, but it's also a microcosm of a nation unto itself of immigrants. There is, as we've said before, the German experience and the Czech experience and the Polish experience, and there's the American experience, and then there's the Mexican heritage, and there's the you know the Tejano heritage, and there's there's so and and there's the African American heritage, and there's so many different aspects that make up Texas society. This is 
such a difficult thing to teach, and it's something that's very rarely taught in schools in terms of Reconstruction. We just don't teach it. We teach Civil War, and then we stop, and then we move to modern ages, and we don't spend enough time kind of talking about this ugly side of Texas history. And another side I, I researched and I didn't really talk about this was somebody actually took several different counties in Texas and looked at the reconstruction in those counties and to see if the the overall reconstruction experience was common throughout the state. And some things were, but some things weren't. So like the county in South Texas, which was largely Tejano, the reconstruction barely touched it because it didn't need to. There, the same tensions were not there that were in Jefferson County, which is where Beaumont is today. But yet, the interesting thing is that some of the violence in Jefferson County wasn't as bad because black culture and freed black culture was a lot more integrated in that county than it was, say, in Collin County or in North Texas or in somewhere else. And then you to look at the German counties and the Reconstruction experience was different there as well because they were mostly Unionists and the, the counties in West Texas where the Germans lived stayed Republican for many, many decades, even to this day. So it's just part of the this, this, this soup that makes up Texas, the story of Texas. And that's what's interesting that we don't, we, you, know, you can't put a blanket statement on Texas. You really need to look at the whole picture to understand. I just find Reconstruction to be an interesting thing because for people from the North would see it as it's a failure. So it's an embarrassment. We set it up, but it didn't work. For people from the South, it's seen as an imposed will that a, a was punishment. defied. It was yeah, a, punishment, a punishment that was defied. An, yeah. an unjust punishment, some would say, that was defied. And the truth of the whole thing is that it's it's such an ugly chapter that we just we'd rather just put it in a box and not forget about it. It was the it was the time we sent our cousin to rehab. And it just didn't work. And we just don't talk about it. Right. But it, it still has reverberations to this day uh, in lots of areas in Texas. So we, we need to study it and understand it. And it, it's interesting to me that in a lot of ways, the Reconstruction was way worse for Texas than the actual Civil War. It, it was in, in a lot of ways. And I think it has to do with the passions of the people in the state, that the people are Texans. We are more passionate about everything. And, and, and that is a good thing. And that can be a bad thing. And, and in this case, in a lot of ways, it was a bad thing, the passions that were elicited through these times. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. And I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. Anyway.